message was given at Hope Church of Knoxville. For more information about Hope Church, please visit our website at hopeknox.com. It's kind of interesting that Jason spoke and and mentioned this week about uh, revival. And uh, uh, many of the points he hit on, and some, some of the things I'm going to hit on as well, ironically, we're going through verse by verse through the book of Acts, and we've come to Acts 8. I'm going to read this uh, passage um, to us real quick. It's a, uh, I'm only going to read a section of it up to uh, Simon the Magician, but we are going to go through all of it this morning. So I'll go ahead and read this for us. There arose on that day a great persecution against the church, and they were all scattered throughout the region throughout regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles, devout men, who buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, and he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. But when Philip down to the city of Samaria proclaimed to them the Christ, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him. And they saw great sign, uh, the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out from many who had them. And many who were paralyzed of or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. We're going to end there. But we're going to go through a, a large section of this this morning. What, do you, what comes to your mind when you think revival? Uh, I know Jason this morning was bringing up the fact that oftentimes we'll see signs that say revival. And he mentioned this morning not to, to forget to send God the invitation. We, we constantly think about revival and we think of signs. Uh, be here this week. Uh, you're going to see a revival. 7 p.m. to 10 p.m. Yeah, only, the only place where God is working is, is where the sign is present. But we, th- we think of revivals like this. We think of sometimes tent revivals or crusades. We may think of that uh, when Billy Graham comes and fills an auditorium, and that's a revival we associate with that. But I'm going to read some, uh, some definitions or some, some quotes about revival, and then I'm going to make mention of what I think and what I think is uh, clear from Scripture as to what revival is. G. Campbell Morgan says this about revival. Revival cannot be organized. But we can set our, ourselves to catch the wind from heaven when God chooses to blow upon His people once again. So it can't be organized. Next, Spurgeon says this, A genuine revival without joy in the Lord is as impossible as spring without flowers or day dawn without light. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, A revival means days of heaven on earth. This is how I want to define revival today, and this is what I want to think about, the way that we can see revival, and I think when we come to this passage, we'll start to see what a revival looks like. But when heaven comes down to earth through the Spirit, so heaven comes to earth through the Spirit, working in God's people. That's how I want to define it this morning. And I think as we get into this passage, we'll see that. But if you remember last week, just to give a little background, last week what we, we saw was Stephen, he gets appointed as to be the first deacon in the church, if you want to think of it that way. And then Stephen goes and he proclaims to these, these Jewish leaders in the synagogue, and he tells them that this thing that they worship, this thing that they focus on, the temple, they've completely misunderstood. 
And that God is not working in a place and He cannot be confounded to a place, but He's in a person of Jesus Christ. And because of that, He offends these people and they say, those are blasphemy. You're speaking blasphemies. Therefore, they got together and stoned Him. And they put Him in a pit and they threw stones at Him and we see that Saul, who will soon be Paul, is holding their coats. And this is what begins our passage today. I'm going to read this again. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And all were scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made a great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This is a transition passage, this little section here. If you notice, it probably has this small part right here as its own section. But it's very important. It's not just something that you read over and pass over, but it's connecting what comes before it and what comes after it. It's very important to understanding the significance of this next section. Stephen was just stoned to death, but also remember back to Acts 1.8. God promises the apostles that they're going to be His witness first in Jerusalem. And then in Judea, and then in Samaria, and then in the ends of the earth. It's a progression. It's a stepping stone. Each stage, there's stages of it. Stephen just proclaimed the gospel in the temple. You have it in Jerusalem. He's in the temple. So Jerusalem is first. Next is Judea and Samaria. God promised this before this ever took place. But what's interesting is, Why did they leave? Why did they go into these places? They're fleeing from Paul and persecution. The reason they're going into Judea and Samaria is they're running away from persecution. So why is this important for us? Because God promised it would happen. But look how it happens. It's through the death of a believer that these men and women go into these places. It would be very quick, and if you think of it this way, we're quick to point the finger at God when bad things happen in our life. Something bad happens or a tragedy happens in our life, and we're thinking, God, it's your fault. I blame you for this. We think that God isn't in control. Or we think, because bad things happen in my life, that it's not working together for the good of those in Christ Jesus. But remember this, God is accomplishing His plan through this man's death. It is through Stephen's death that these places get to hear the gospel. God is very much in control. There's nothing that goes outside of His reach. It is because of Stephen's death, because of this great tragedy in Stephen's life, that others get to hear the gospel. So when we hear of great tragedies in the world, we don't have to worry and wonder, is God in control? But we can take confidence in two things, that He is in control. But also, Romans 8 tells us that He's working all things together for the good of those in Christ Jesus. So not only these terrible things happen, but we know that they're for our good and for His glory. We may not always understand it, but we know that it's for the good of God's people. So Stephen's death, it may look like an accident or something terrible that took place, but God is in control. 
We may not ever understand the 9-11s of the world or the Paris bombings in the world, but know that God is in control. That's comforting. Because no matter how bad your tragedy is, it's not like God didn't see it. He very much did. And it's for your good and for the good of His people. Now down to verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Notice here that the result of persecution, the, the result of culture coming at them and saying they're wrong and saying, um, attacking them and saying that they're blasphemous, it doesn't have them, it doesn't cause them to go in their houses and hide. It doesn't cause them to be quiet and to stop preaching the message. No. It motivates them to go in these other countries and start preaching the gospel. How often when culture attacks us or says that you know, we're hateful people, we're just um, bigots, or we're angry people, we're just mean people who always want to say everyone's sinners besides themselves, how often do we refrain from preaching the message? How often do we use that as an excuse for not being bold in preaching the gospel? Here these men are running for their lives and what are they doing? They don't stop preaching and hide. No, they keep preaching the gospel. This is not radical Christianity. These are not radicals. These are just men being faithful. These are men who've got nine to five jobs like you and I. Yet they're being faithful to God's Word even when it may cost them their life. This is normal, authentic Christianity. Don't take these as the super religious spiritual people. No, these are people just like you and I longing to be faithful to the Lord. All too often we segregate Christianity and say these are the radicals. All they do is talk about Jesus. And these are normal Christians. No. This is authentic. This is normal Christianity. This is faithful Christianity. This is what we are called to. Faithfulness to the Lord. Even in the midst of persecution from the culture. Go with me a little bit further now. Verse 4 still. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him, they saw many signs that he did. What's a sign? We've talked about what does a spirit-filled life look like. We talked about that in a sermon previously. That A spirit-filled sermon is one that's Christ-centered. And a spirit-filled life is one that's Christ-centered. But what does it look like when a revival takes place in the church? What's the fruit of a revival? Not a street sign that says revival. What's the result of it? What's the result of a revival? How can we tell and look and see when a true revival is taking place? It's not a scheduled singing. You guys know what singings are? Revival singings? If you don't, you're blessed. Consider yourself blessed. Singings were terrible. (laughs) There's a whole generation where they have revivals and singings went along with it. And they were, if you don't know what it is, don't even Google it. It's terrible. (laughs) That's not the sign of a revival. What is the sign of a revival? Well, sad as many of you think that I'm joking. They're really that bad. Um, sorry. But what is the sign of a revival? I think we see it here. They all cling to God's Word. They are all paying attention to God's Word. 
They were all longing for God's Word. That's the sign of a true revival. People's hearts are changed. They have a disposition changed towards God's Word. Towards God. Sinclair Ferguson says this, It's not that the message ever changes during the, a revival. They're preaching the same message that we preach week after week after week. The way that we know a revival is here is not that people start changing their message or their methodology. We're not going to do these things in order to hope bring about a revival. We're not going to make our music a little more moody or turn out the lights a little bit lower or have 20 stanzas of just as I am. The way we know a true revival is taking place is the message is the same, but the hearts and the ears and the eyes of the people are changed to long after it. Just like Jason was talking about this morning. Is that they hear the same thing. You, you tell them over and over and over again. You share sermons with them. And they never get it. They're blind to it. But one day, the Lord takes hold of their hearts. And it's as if they can't get enough of the Word. They meditate on it. They long for it. They think about it. They start asking questions about it every day. They text you all the time asking you about it. These are signs of a new believer. These are signs that the Spirit is at work. These are signs of a revival. They can't get enough of God's Word. Nothing has changed. Your message is identical. But their heart has been changed. It's been gripped by God. Their desires have been changed. And that's what takes place. Verse 7. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. This is another sign of a revival. The result of this is that people receive joy. Notice that it'd be easy and quick for us to, to start jumping on and focusing heavily on the, the sick or healed. The sick. These things were promised. But the fact is, it results in their joy. A joyous revival is no revival at all. The Spirit promises, a fruit of the Spirit is joy. And we see here that the result of these people preaching the gospel and their hunger for the word is joy. All too often we think of uh, Christianity as a joyous religion. People think, uh, you know, I don't want to become a Christian. I don't, you know, all Christians want to do is, is take the fun away. They don't want you to have fun. That's the whole thing. And people joke about Puritans and they say that uh, the only sin for a Puritan was joy. The fact is, Christianity is a joyous religion. If there's no joy present, you don't have Christ. It's all about joy. Psalm 34 says, Delight yourself in the Lord and He'll give you the desires of your heart. By delighting in God, He will give you more of Himself. The focus is our delight. John Piper has a famous quote where he says this, and I think he's spot on. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Christianity is very much focused on joy. 
John Piper even has a word that he's made up and caused a lot of controversy, but he calls it Christian hedonism. It's all about Christians trying, doing whatever possible to find the most joy in God. And I think that's the biblical message. 1 John 1.4 says this, We are writing these things so that our joy will be made complete. Scripture's purpose is for our joy. We're not a joyous people. We're not a joyless people. It's not that we hate joy. I would argue that all the the morals in Scripture lead us to greater joy. It's through obedience to the Lord that you find the greatest joy in life. It's not through having no morals that you find joy. It is through obedience to the Lord that that joy comes. The result of the gospel coming to this area is joy. Now, contrasting that joy as we come to this section here. There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and was amazing the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. So what I think is going on here is you have, the, this, you have a true revival taking place with the Samaritans. They receive joy. And I think what we're, is going in here, this is a contrast. That's why the very next thing it says, but there. But, there's a contrast. The Samaritans had true joy, but then you have this guy who's preaching magic. He's doing all kinds of tricks, trying to amaze people. People thought he was great. Notice how they, they, they said, what, how they spoke about him. It's not that he's this weirdo in town doing magic tricks. No. He was attracting people. He was drawing a crowd. People thought he was great. How often do people with false messages and false revivals attract people? Turn on TBN. They have huge congregations of people. Sometimes they never even preach the gospel. They are attractive to this world. They're drawing people in. Just like in the Old Testament when God is at work, or throughout the Old Testament we kind of see this theme. Think about this. Genesis 3.15, God promises that the seed of the serpent was going to be at enmity with a seed of promise. And over and over the serpent is fighting against the seed of promise. And we've talked about this over and over again, that, that Satan is trying to prevent the coming of the Messiah. And once the Messiah does come... The gates of hell are trying to prevail against the kingdom of God and they cannot. Here we see that as well is that the spirit is at work and also there's a counter to that. Satan is at work trying to advance his cause as well, trying to pull people away from God's message. And let's see what happens. When they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. They were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles he performed, he was amazed. I don't think this is a true conversion experience. I think he he believed and was baptized, and I think we'll truly see that as we're coming into this. But just like Jason said, and we're talking about, you can literally preach the gospel to someone, force someone to pray a prayer, 
or motivate them, encourage them to come down front and sign a card, yet they're never truly saved. And I think that's what we're going to see with Philip. You know, he checked the mark for, I want to get saved, he got baptized, joined the roles of the church, and yet his heart was in these miracles. He was in the, what's in it for me mentality. I'm in it for me. You know, how, how can I be blessed from this? How can I can make myself better? How can I make my name great? Rather than how can I make God's name great? Simon is very much about himself. And we'll see that as we get into this. Simon thought, I'll take God if He gives me this. I'll take God if I can get this and get these things and make myself better and make my life better. I'll take, I'll take Jesus if He gives me a new car. That's what the prosperity gospel teaches. That's what this man is in for. He's in it for the things. He's not in it for God. If you get all the things in the world but don't get Jesus, you've got nothing. Now down to verse 14. When the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not fallen on any of them. Yet they had only been baptized in the name of Jesus, the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Spirit. So why do these men not receive the Spirit whenever they believed and were baptized? You start wondering, this whole theology is based off this. Entire theological systems that teach, you know, you you have a second blessing, a time that you receive the Holy Spirit a second time. You have almost an entire Pentecostal system. The Pentecostal theology system is based on this thought. That you receive the Holy Spirit when you're saved, and I guess maybe He can leave, and then you can receive Him again for the more spiritually elite, or He comes more upon people later at a later time. Is that what this passage is teaching? No. I don't think so at all. I think this reason this passage is here is to show us that it's something that's abnormal, but also... It's to show us something even greater. Back in Acts 2.38, where do I get this idea that it's not teaching this? Acts 2.38 says this, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So, they repented and believed in Jesus Christ, but they haven't received the Spirit. Is this promise not true? Was Peter lying when he made this statement? No. Understanding this is understanding Acts 1.8. We've talked about this at the beginning. First, there are going to be witnesses in Jerusalem, and then in Judea, and then in Samaria, and then the end result is the end of the earth. The whole earth is going to proclaim Christ. It's, think of it as a rocket ship. It starts off in the home base in Jerusalem, it slowly breaks through the first stage of the atmosphere and continues going until it's out in space. That's what's going on. It's a progression. These, the people from Judea and Samaria have not received the gospel yet. This is the first time they see the gospel. This is the first time they've heard the gospel and they believe. Samaritans, let me give you an understanding. This is something brand new for them. Previously, the good news in Yahweh was always about Israel. The only focus was Israel. They had promises that the nations would be blessed through them, but the focus throughout the Old Testament was Israel. Now you come to this section, 
And we're starting to see the Gospels going out. Samaritans, they were in the northern part of Israel in Samaria. They were considered the half-breeds, if you want to think of that. They were a people in Israel that were pagans. That's why you have the story about the Samaritan woman. She's seen as something different. And she asked Jesus, when are we going to worship on the same hill? They were considered half-breed people. That's why it goes to Jerusalem first, to God's people, then to Judea and Samaria, and then to the Gentiles. It's not that one's better than the other, but it's a progress. That's why Samaritans were seen differently. That's what's going on here, is that it hadn't reached these people yet. So the gospel then goes to them, and we'll see what happens. Then they laid their hands on them, on the Samaritans. And they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through them, through the laying on the hands of the apostles, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. This is why I don't think Simon truly was a believer. He missed it. A more accurate description of this, a better translation, a more accurate translation, there's two other translations that translate it this way. May you and your money go to Hades. To Hades, this is what, that's the Good News translation, the New English Bible translates it this way, to Hades with you and your money. You see the strongness? I think English translation here <coughs> depicts it, but I think it's, the language is a lot stronger. There's more power to it. There's more, we see the really depths of what Peter is saying. Is that it's not just saying that, you know, because you said this, you're wrong. No. He's saying the whole concept is messed up. You're loving money and not God. You're loving power and not God. You think you can buy the things of God with silver and gold? You think that God is your genie in the bottle? That you can make people worship you? You've missed it. It's not about coming to God so that people worship you. It's not about building up your kingdom. It's not about people coming to you and you having the bestseller book. And for you to be the popular TV personnel or person persona. No, it's not about you. It's about making His name great. And look how He responds. You neither have part nor lot in this matter. For your heart is not right before God. Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours. And pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. For I see that you are the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Peter calls him to repent. He's in it for himself. He's in it for his glory. And then he calls him to repent of these things that he may be spared. Because his heart is far from the Lord. Look how Simon responds. And Simon answered him. This is the reason I don't think he ever truly repented. Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you said may come upon me. Now when they testified 
and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. I think it's interesting that Simon doesn't pray even. He calls him to repent and pray. Peter says, repent and pray. And what does he do? You pray for me. You. He's trying to take it off himself. He's trying to separate himself. It's your responsibility. He's never truly turning to the Lord. The words never sank in. They never captivated his heart. They never changed him. The results of this revival, though, is not them stopping. It doesn't end here. No, the, the revival continues on. The Spirit continues to work. It advances on. It spreads. And they continue preaching the gospel. How do we, how do we bring about revival? Is it possible to bring it about? Obviously, it's something that God does. But can we do anything as G. Campbell Morgan said, and I read this quote at the beginning, let me read it again for us. Revival cannot be organized, but we can set the sails to catch the wind from heaven when God chooses to blow upon His people once again. How can we set the sails to catch the wind of this revival? And I think it's by doing what they do there. Preach the gospel. Read God's word. And be faithful in those things. It's nothing fancy. It's not emotionalism. We don't have to come up with the catchiest ways to attract people. Preach the gospel. Pray and go out, read His Word, go out and share the good news with your neighbor, your co-worker. That's what we're called to do. We're called to faithfulness. And when we're faithful, when the winds of heaven come down, our ship will set sail. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for...